As we come again before the very Word of God, uh, you can turn in your Bibles if you'd like to read along with me to the first letter of John. Uh, we'll be in 1 John, that's not the Gospel of John, but 1 John, in the first chapter. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our great God, you've told us that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. We are about to approach now the revealed things. You have brought these things to light for us by your grace. Would you open our eyes now by your spirit to behold the wonders here. Help us to hear you in this and that we would come to believe. Guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is 1 John in chapter 1. I want us to take up this morning just these first uh, five verses. So 1 John chapter 1 will begin in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This is the word of God. Now, this is our very first dip into the pool that is the letter we call 1 John. This is just one of three letters from John that are part of the Holy Scriptures. And this letter uh, from John looks quite a bit different from John's other two letters. Uh, what we call 2nd and 3rd John, which come after this. Those letters are quite a bit shorter than this one. In those letters, John calls himself the Elder, which is a nice title, the Elder. And John says in each of those letters that he's writing in one to, to someone he calls the Elect Lady and her children. And in the other, he writes to a man named Gaius. And in both of those letters, he says a bunch of things, but then he concludes by saying, hey, I hope to visit you soon so that we can talk face to face. But in 1 John, we have none of the markers that we typically associate with letters in the scripture. There's no 
address here, here at the beginning or at the end. There's no from part. There's no, you know, from Paul, an apostle of Christ, from James, his servant. He doesn't say, this is from the elder, as he does in other letters. He doesn't say, this is from I, John, the way he talks about himself in the book of Revelation. Nor does he say, this is from the apostle whom Jesus loved, which is the way he refers to himself when he writes in the Gospel of John. We don't have any of that here. There's no from, there's also no to. He doesn't say, you know, say hi to Priscilla and Aquila. He doesn't say, encourage Archippus. Or, there's no address of anyone. In fact, there's no mention of any proper names in this whole writing at all. There's not even this, a standard greeting. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just none of that. And so if we didn't already call this a letter... We might not even recognize that it is a letter. In fact, it doesn't quite sound like one. It sounds more like, like a sermon, like a proclamation. John just launches right in in this introduction. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen. And what we're listening to here in this part and in the rest of the letter, it is a letter. But it's more than that. This is a testimony. It's best for us to understand 1 John as what I'm calling a text of traveling testimony. It's traveling because it's not written to just one particular person or with one particular group in mind. That's the way letters normally come. The letter that we call Ephesians, is written to the, the church at Ephesus. The, the letters you know, of Corinthians are to the church at Corinth. The letter that we call Timothy is written to Timothy. But the traveling text, the traveling testimony of 1 John is sent from the Apostle John, but it's to be passed from church to church to church to church. Now, this does not mean that these words here were written for just anybody. Of course, anyone can listen to them. But John is writing to Christians. He is writing to churches of believers. These are people who have come to know and love and trust in Jesus as the Lord of their life, as the Savior of sinners. So it's written to some particular people. And he's not impersonal about his writing. This isn't just an impersonal open letter that he just posts up on Twitter uh, for anybody to read if they want. There's a genuine care and affection for these listeners. As we read, he calls them various things. He calls them brothers. He calls his listeners beloved. He calls them my little children. So John is speaking as this sort of pastoral grandfather, if I can call him that, pastoral grandfather to this large family, the Church of Jesus. And in this writing, John has wisdom that he really wants the broader church to know. It's not just one point. 
be much easier on me as a preacher if it were. There's not just one point in this letter. There's not a, an easy key verse. There's not a thesis statement of his purpose for, for writing that's easily uh, uh, spelled out. He's going to stretch over the course of this over a wide swath of a bunch of big, grand themes, like themes of, of life and light and love and lies. And he's going to set all those things out in terms of contrast and dichotomy. So he'll talk about life versus death, love versus hate, light versus dark, truth versus lies, good versus evil, God versus Satan, Christ versus the Antichrist. And, and John does it this way in these sort of black and white categories, not because he's ignoring the gray areas of life. The Bible leans into those complex areas a lot, but because there are some things that are and ought to be talked about as black and white. That's what he says in verse 5. This is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So over the course of these coming weeks and months, we'll see those dichotomous pairs sprinkled throughout the whole text. And overall, John wants to give his listeners a stable spot to stand, to give them an anchor of assurance, a calm confidence. In fact, one writer, I think he's right, one writer said, if there's a main theme in 1 John, it's this. To give his letter, to give his listeners Christian certainty. To give them Christian certainty. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? I do. Some Christian certainty that, that whatever I may see happening in the world and on the news, that, that I can have Christian certainty. That whatever chaos, fears, doubts might be swirling around in my own mind, that I can have Christian certainty. That in the oceans of unknown for the future, there are some things that we can still know with Christian certainty. So by the end of the letter, then John tells us about part of his goal for this traveling testimony. He says in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know for certain that you have eternal life. Now, by talking about this eternal life, he's not talking about heaven here. Although that's true, we can't have confidence in that. Nor is he talking about, you know, what comes after heaven, the new heavens and the new earth and the redemption of all things. There's certainty in that too. But that's not what he means by life here. The life that we have confidence in is a person. He says, Jesus is the true God and is eternal life. Jesus is the life. The way, the truth, the life, the resurrection and the life. And now John has written to testify about Christ who is the life. Now, 
background. There you go. Feels like the sermon's, you know, just getting started. Now, given that that's the context we're in, how does this happen? That is, how is John able to testify to this Jesus with certainty? A certainty for himself, but also for all of us who are listening. How is he able to do that? In the rest of our time, we're going to focus on a single word, as we often do, from this opening. And it's in verse 2. Let me read it. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it. The life was made manifest manifest. Christ the life was manifested. If you're reading out of other translations, you might see the words that Christ was, uh, Christ was revealed or that Christ appeared. That is, that Christ was made visible in a way that is clearly evident. That's what manifest is. So as a kid... I was captivated. That's probably an understatement even. Captivated by a particular TV show. Maybe some of you remember or are familiar with this called Breaking the Magician's Code. Ring any bells for anybody? Breaking the Magician's Code. Magic's biggest secrets revealed. And it was this masked magician, which they said he had to say, I keep a mask so that he wouldn't get in trouble for telling everybody's secrets. But this masked magician, in a series of episodes, was manifesting magic. That is, was showing how magic tricks were done, giving us a pullback behind the curtain. They'd show the trick, and then they'd show how, how, how it was. So we'd see, like, the woman get, get sawn in half. And then he shows us kind of the side of how she's all contorted and folded up in one half of the box. And, you know, that's how it goes. Now, uh, oh, and even at the end of the series, uh, the, the magician even manifests himself. He takes off his own mask to reveal his own identity, which was very anticlimactic because I had no idea who he was. I mean, how many magicians can you name, after all? At any rate, uh, this, this show, re- revealing uh, the, the magic's biggest secrets, was like a lot of things in life. That is, that the, the revealing, the, the manifestation of the magic, in the end, showed it to be less glorious. So when the magic was made visible, when it was made clearly evident that I could see that it was just a trick, a clever trick, but a trick, and the revealing actually turned that trick into something that would wow me, to something that kind of in the end just disappointed me. I look at how the trick is done and I go, oh, yeah, I could kind of see that. You know, it amounts to a little more than like, look over there while I pull this lever. You know, and usually the, the women are the ones doing all the bending and all the, the you know. In this process, there's a literal disillusioning that's happening. And I can see then that the mask was actually greater than the reality it covered. But this is different. Because the manifestation of Jesus 
is actually revealing a greater reality. In the manifestation, there's not less glory, but more glory. Because Jesus is the manifestation of God. The image of the invisible God. The very author of life itself. All things hang on this manifestation of the life. So in the rest of our time now, I want us to consider just a few things about this manifestation of Jesus and how it plays out. Three things. The first is this. The manifestation of Jesus is eternal. The manifestation is eternal. He says in the very opener, that which was from the beginning. It's a revelation of that which was from the beginning, the one who is the ancient of days. And Jesus is from the beginning because he's beyond the beginning. You know, he, the life which was manifested and is now proclaimed is called eternal life. Which means that aside from his holiness, a large part of what keeps God hidden from our eyes, what keeps God hidden from our eyes is not trickery. It's not because he's trying to pull a fast one on us, like the Wizard of Oz, who's just got a bunch of smoke and mirrors. What keeps God hidden from us is his immensity, his infinity. We are creatures that have a life breath of just a few short decades, and we are attempting to behold the life of infinite God, a God who can wrap the whole span of history like a string around his finger. You know, if the whole span of the Bible, if the Bible from beginning to end represented the full span of time that God has made, the Alpha to the Omega, the Genesis to the, uh, to the Revelation. Our life here, yours and mine, our life on earth would not be expressed by one book out of the Bible. It wouldn't even be a chapter out of the Bible or even a sentence or even a single word. Our entire lives would be summed up by a single period. That's the span of our life in comparison. Out of the many, many pages of the Bible, we live as one dot on one single page. Which means for us, in our lifetime, to try to fathom the life of God, that would be like a child with his nose touching the Great Wall of China trying to figure out what it is that he's looking at. We cannot grasp it all. The life of God is not something that we can know by instinct, not something that we can know by intuition, by deduction, by speculation, by science. Instead, the eternal life must be revealed to us.
must be manifested to us. That's the first. This manifestation is eternal. The second is that the manifestation is tangible. It's tangible. That's the one that I think is clearest in this opening part. There's not just a vague sense of God and his presence here. You know, if if that's all that God is, if he's just a vague sense, then we might wonder if we imagined him or made him up. But this life here that John is talking about is a life that engages the senses. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked on, which we have touched with our hands, heard, seen, examined, touched. Jesus is not just an idea. He's not just a set of theological concepts. He's not just a picture as a storybook character in my children's Bible. He is a real person who in the course of history is manifested in the flesh, a flesh that is just as solid as your skin is. This manifestation is tangible. We call these tangible experiences of God in the scriptures, by the way. There's a term for this. We call them theophany. If you ever hear that, now you know what it means. A theophany literally means a God manifestation. And it doesn't only happen in Jesus. It happens periodically over the course of the scriptures that God tangibly appears to Moses at the burning bush, speaks with him, commands him. He speaks to, he uh, appears to Israel at Mount Sinai in clouds of thunder and lightning and, and in the giving of the Ten Commandments. God appears in theophany to Isaiah at the throne room of the heavenly temple. He appears to Ezekiel in the land of Babylon. These are the times when, when these people could see and hear God, sometimes even touch or smell the presence of God. And now John is saying, I've encountered theophany. I have seen, heard, touched the tangible life of God in the person of Jesus, and I can testify to it. There's an authority that comes with being a witness of theophany, a witness of manifestation. John has tangibly engaged with God in a way that many others have not. Not everyone bears the same level of authority that John has. We know that's different than a lot of people view things now. Culturally, many people in our culture have come to be skeptical of authority, Perhaps for good reason. Sometimes authority gets abused. That's not news to us. So because some of us have become skeptical of authority, it seems that the response has been to make everybody an authority on everything. Which is not good either. That somehow I would think that I'm qualified as an expert to speak authoritatively on all matters of parenting, of economic policy, of war, of vaccines, of police. We, we just think that we know it all. Culturally, we suffer from an overabundance of self-confidence 
in our knowledge. And ironically, the more self-confident we fear, the, feel, the more it undercuts any real authoritative confidence we might actually been, be given. The author of John now is giving unique claims. And he backs up these claims here not by making a point of his own relationship to Jesus, although he and Jesus were close. He emphasizes the fact that he is an eyewitness, an ear witness, and a hand witness. He's a witness in all these forms. And now he has written this authoritative traveling testimony to tell about the manifestation of Jesus who has come tangibly, touchably. That's the second. The manifestation is tangible. Third, and finally, the manifestation here is collective. It's not that everyone receives the same manifestation. Clearly, that's not the case. But it's also not the opposite. John is not just a voice calling into the dark all by himself. John is one of many reliable witnesses who testify together. Verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. And testify to it. He keeps using the word we. We have seen, we proclaim, we have touched. This is uh, not just the sort of testimony that some people think about when they think of the word testimony. The idea of a testimony has changed, morphed a bit in recent years. So in Christian, in Christian circles, sometimes testimony refers to my personal life story. If I give a testimony, I'm going to tell you how I came to faith in Jesus, how Jesus changed my life and saved me from sin and what that looks like. Now, that can be a very good thing to share, a good thing for us to think about, for sure. That's just not what John means here. You'll notice he doesn't call it my testimony. It's our testimony, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we now proclaim. So in this sense, this is not just the testimony of John. There is Peter and James and Matthew and John and many others who all share this same collective testimony. And it's as if all of these people have come together and now sit in the same chair on the witness stand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. And together with one voice, they say, we do. This is a collective manifestation. Now, the long-term effect of this traveling testimony written by John is to increase our Christian confidence. Our confidence of what we know is true about God, of what we know is true about ourselves. But it's also to give us a more immediate effect. Not just long-term confidence, but also he mentions here a couple of reasons. 
I write this, this is in verse, well, where is it? Three, four, three and four, where he says, I write this so that you will have fellowship with us and so that our joy will be complete. There's a lot in those two things. We're going to have to save that for next week or another time whenever it comes up. Today, I just want us to see this, that all of these things, the, the confidence, the fellowship, the joy that is to, com- to be completed, all of those things have a grounding. And that grounding is not ultimately the testimony that's given by John. John's part of it. It comes through to the testimony of John. That's good. We're thankful for it. Praise God for that. But the confidence is is not, the source of it is not in John's testimony. The source is something deeper, that the life was made manifest, that the life appeared. That's not something John did. That's not something Paul did or anyone else did. You know, it's not a manifestation like we hear culturally. I put the affirmation out there in the universe, and by some arbitrary law of attraction, he manifested himself. That, that's pushed by books like The Secret, if you've ever heard that, but that's, it's nonsense, and that's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God was manifested in Christ just because of his own will and power. The eternal life manifested himself to us. Christ has now shown himself to be the source of all that we have. He's the source of all of our faith, all of our hope, all of our love, all of our knowledge. We can go on. And that's just the beginning. The manifestation of Christ is a sort of deposit sort of foretaste of what was to come. Jesus has manifested himself in John's day, but Jesus will manifest himself again when he comes at the last coming, and every eye will see him. So we have confidence now for his manifestation on the last day. Let me hear or say this last confidence to close with something from verse ch- or chapter 3, verse 2. John writes to us this, Beloved, We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we know it's true that you've become flesh and dwelt among us and and many have seen your glory that is full of grace and truth. Lord, you've made yourself known also through the revelation that you've given through your apostles. Thank you for working through these things. Would you press this upon our hearts to bring us to believe that we might have comfort and confidence in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.